an inspired word. May the Lord himself add his blessing to it. The cycle of life. History repeats itself. The more things change, the more they stay the same. And on and on, the, the truisms of, of Ecclesiastes in these first 11 verses ring in our ears. What has been will be again. As we consider these opening verses of Ecclesiastes, it's, it's good to note something of, of the context and, and in the book of Ecclesiastes, there is no verse that says, this is the author. No one is named by name, as, as is common in so many of the books of the Bible. However, tradition tells us, and, and I think that uh, the texts of, of the book confirm that the author is indeed Solomon. Now, there's a lot of controversy on that. There's a lot, lot who would uh, assert another author. But I, I think, it, to me anyway, it, it seems quite clear that the words of the preacher, the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, is indeed exactly what it purports to be, and that is the son of David, the king in Jerusalem, King Solomon. And that, assuming to be the case, that would place this at, oh, about 950, maybe a, maybe a couple decades closer to the birth of Christ, but about 950 years prior to the birth of our Lord. The author of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, I'm presuming here, calls himself the Kohela, or the instructor, the teacher, or as our text says, the preacher. And he is instructing the people of, uh, in his wisdom, in, in those things that he has learned. You recall from, from the life of, of Solomon that he had prayed for wisdom, and the Lord gave him both wisdom and riches, which were unparalleled. And though he had great wisdom, great knowledge, so much so that he was renowned around the world and, and, and people of influence came to him for, for their answers, we recall also from 1 Kings that he was wise, but he was foolish. He, he had hundreds of wives and even more concubines, and, and they were not equally yoked, to say the least. He had wives and, and lovers from around the world of every nation, tribe, and religion, and they led him astray. And he allowed himself to be led astray. And we see in 1 Kings chapter 11, we'll look at it a little bit later, he behaved himself shamefully. And in 1 Kings, there's not a note that as he grew old, then he repented of, of his folly. It leaves that untouched. Now the tradition of the church, and I think what, makes the most sense is that what we have here in Ecclesiastes are those final days, perhaps that final decade of the 40 years where, where Solomon was king in Jerusalem and after he had repented of, of so much of this folly and he shows us in prose and narrative and in poetry 
some of the wisdom that God has shown him through his follies and through his observations. One commentator, who was also my Hebrew professor, uh, Dr. Benshaw, puts the purpose of the book this way. Quote, human beings tend to take life under the sun both too seriously and not seriously enough. We take it too seriously when we fail to recognize and admit its brevity, its impermanence. We put too much stock in the world. But on the other hand, we do not take it seriously enough. We, need, we ignore the ordinary events of life, the pleasures of a quiet evening spent with family, the small joys that occur from time to time in marriage, the humor of a moment that's forgotten by the end of the day. And that's, to a point, the essence of, of what we have in Ecclesiastes. We have a view of life under the sun, the horizontal perspective of life, the day-to-day -day observations of, of humans as we interact with one another, as we observe the world that goes on around us. What do we learn thereby? And there are a couple of themes that, that come up time and time again in Ecclesiastes as, as this idea is developed by the author. Primarily, vanity. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. In verse 2, what we have five times that word is used. Well, we think of vanity in, in today's context, and as language changes, sometimes we think somebody who primps up their hair, that's not me, obviously, but somebody who, who primps up the air, and, and it's all about looking good. That's, that's not what, what this word really means. Literally, it, it means a vapor or, or a breath. <sighs> Did you see that? No, you didn't. My breath came out. You didn't see it. And it was here and it was gone. And, and it's vanity. It's gone. It's emptiness. Or perhaps lack of substance is behind this word. One word that the commentators keep coming back to is ephemeral. It's here and it's gone and it's never to be seen again. That's the way it goes. And that's how Solomon is describing life. It's ephemeral. It's here and it's gone and it's forgotten as we perceive life under the sun. Perhaps we can define this best by looking at its opposite. Uh, Isaiah chapter 40, you're probably very familiar with this. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. The things of this world, the flower and the grass, they're ephemeral, they're, they're vanity, they, they fade away. As opposed to the word of God, which is consistent and pure and withstands all, it lasts forever. The two things standing side by side, the word of God and its permanence in our life on this planet, under the sun, it's here and it's gone. Now, I have to warn you before we get too far in it, because this morning I preached the same message and, and I saw a number of the lovely folks from our congregation 
This is a downer. As we get further into this, we see something of, of the grace of God too as we, we consider this. So as we go through, we see what Solomon is pointing us to, that the brevity of life and, and that we have to recognize that and take that seriously. But Lord willing, we'll see also something of the comfort for the child of God as we go through this. Don't lose hope. Solomon then speaks of, of the brevity of life as contrasted to the consistency of the world. Now, he's not denying the truths that we see throughout Scripture, that, that God created all things in six days, it has a beginning, that it has a terminus, that, that Christ will come again at the second coming. We'll consider that lately. But what we have here is, again, once again, the horizontal. What we see today. Do you remember what life was like before you came here? No, by definition, you don't remember it. Will you see what life is like after you died? No, you won't. But you know that the world was before you came, and it most certainly will continue on after we're gone. It doesn't need us. Our life is a vapor. As small people... And we all are, whether we acknowledge it or not. As small people living a small existence in this vapor of a life, we're always trying to find meaning, to find purpose. What is the meaning of life? The question of the ages, right? Mankind wants to be recognized, wants to be remembered, wants to be known, wants to be observed. Perhaps that partly explains why some of the theories take on so much traction in the world. The coming ice age, the global warming, the climate change, the end of fossil fuels, etc. They take hold upon society because in some way, our life has meaning then. We can change or affect something. Our hope that in some small way we, we can make a difference. Because otherwise we feel like Solomon says here, it's all vanity. It comes and it goes and we're not even noticed. Life is ephemeral. Now, ironically, the author of this, Solomon, is remembered 3,000 years later as he talks about how we'll never be remembered. But that's because it's a part of the permanent word of God, the word of God that stands forever. So under the sun, examining life from our vantage point on a horizontal plane. And Solomon then seems to be looking through the lens of creation. There are nuances, there are, there are veiled references to the first, say, six chapters of the book of Genesis as we go through the book of Ecclesiastes. And they, they come through in recurring fashion. We see creation. We see temptation. We see oppression. We, we see faith. Towards the end of the book, we, we see faith taking a, a primary hold here. So that's just a little bit of the context, a, a big picture, uh, a, a mile-high view of, of the book of Ecclesiastes. 
But what we have before us here are the introductory verses, 11 verses, a short poetic pericope portion of Ecclesiastes. And I'd like to consider that this evening under three headings. Life is fleeting. That's your downer. Life is fleeting. Secondly, the natural world continues on. And finally, is there anything new? Is Solomon right, I guess we could say, that that there truly is nothing new? And that's our third point. Life is fleeting. We see this uh, picking up our text in verses 3 and beginning verse 4. What profit has a man from all his labor in which he toils under the sun? One generation passes away and another generation comes. What's the point? We're here. Get up at six o'clock. Go to work. Work all day. Go to bed. Get up tomorrow. Do the same thing. What's the point? The truth is that, as the author tells us, we can't take it with us. Now, he's not saying don't work. Solomon was a hardworking man, undoubtedly, and we're called to work. That's not what he's saying. But he is reminding us that we can't take it with us. The things of this world in this short ephemeral life of, that we're given is, is ultimately just passing time as we look horizontally at the world. Solomon, a man of great wealth, was only here for a short time. You and I, men and women of lesser wealth, lesser significance, will only be here for a short time. We can't take it with us. Consider the parable of the rich fool from Luke chapter 12. The man who who was having the farmer having thriving years and filling up his barns. He's I'll tear them down, I'll build bigger barns, and I'll store stuff, and, and, and I'll just accumulate it, it all, and then I'll be secure because I'll have all this stuff. The Lord says to him, you fool, this night your soul will be required of you. You can't take it with you. He had all the stuff, and he left it to someone that he didn't know. We can make all the plans we want for the rest of our life. And and it's good to make plans. But we have to do so in pencil because we don't know what tomorrow will bring. We don't know that we'll have a tomorrow. Vanity of vanities. There's a reason why hearse don't have trailer hitches. You can't hook a true U-Haul trailer up to them and, and bring your stuff with you. It's the end, whether you have a house full, a barn full, a estate full, or you're a pauper sitting at the king's gates. We all come to that terminus. We come to that day that the Lord has appointed for us from before we had our first breath. And our days are numbered and they're finished. Consider the author of this, Solomon. He had built the greatest temple with no expense spared. All the artisans busy making the glorious, beautiful, intricate work. 
He'd accumulated immeasurable wealth. He had cared for an unimaginable household. And at the end of his 40 years of reign, his body would grow stiff and decay at the same rate as the pauper who sat at his gate. His end is the same. And so will ours. And our goods will go to others who will not cherish them the same way we do. They won't value them the same way we do. We will die. Moses himself wrestled with the same question in in Psalm 90. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they're 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. But it is before it is soon cut off and we fly away. We work. And then we die. Very sobering. Seemingly hopeless as we live under the sun. Work your fingers to the bone. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt as the song No matter the advances of modern science, the lifespan of humanity has remained quite consistent. With only a couple of exceptions, in the past 6,000 years, every person has eventually found the grave. So will we. We're not the exception, unless the Lord comes before our days are numbered. And then, as verse 11 tells us, will soon be forgotten. There's no remembrance of former things. We can trace our ancestry back, maybe five generations, others 10, 15 generations. But then it all kind of becomes a blur. And we don't know who they were. And they're forgotten. I have a grandfather that I I love very dearly, went to visit every week. He's been gone now for 33 years. My mind kind of forgets his appearance, the tenor of his voice. It all just kind of fades into the background. We must face the truth that no matter our standing in life, we're really not that important, are we? How many of us can even name all the presidents of the United States? Now we're just talking 250 years. Can you name all the presidents? A few of you might. I knew a few people that could, but not many. How about the vice presidents? And these are some of the men who have been the most notable in this nation. Their memory, too, like ours, kind of fades away. There's not true fulfillment under the sun. We live and we die, we're forgotten. Now that doesn't mean that we should lose hope, we shouldn't do anything, we should just sit here and mope. None of that. We are called throughout scripture and we see that to labor faithfully. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. He who does not labor shall not work. We're called to obedience. That's not the level that that Solomon is dealing with. We are called to live each day for the Lord. We're we're called his creation, the handiwork of his care. That's not what Solomon's dealing with. He's dealing with the here and now. Life under the sun. 
and we can't find any true and ultimate satisfaction in the things of this world. All around us, we see people trying. Time and time again, we, we find ourselves falling into that same trap. If I had just a little bit more, a couple more acres, a, another zero in my bank account, maybe five more kids, maybe this, maybe that, maybe then, maybe that retirement house in Myrtle Beach, that's what it takes. We can't find any fulfillment because we're never satisfied. The eye cannot express it, cannot see it. The ear cannot be filled with hearing. There's always a little bit more. Solomon enjoyed David as a father, the man after God's own heart. He was raised in this covenant household. He enjoyed more power and influence and wisdom than any of his contemporaries. He had all the earthly pleasures and more at his disposal they all left him cold he set his eye to finding pleasure in this world and he didn't what a sad testimony from first kings chapter 11 consider these few verses for it was so when solomon was old that his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not loyal to the Lord his God, as was the heart of his father David. For Solomon went after the Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. And Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord, as did his father David. Then Solomon built a high place at, at Chemish, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Seeking after the pleasures of this world only left him in desperate straits, empty, and, and away from, from the from the close fellowship of his God. Now, we can praise God with the testimony of Ecclesiastes that life here is not the end of all things. Life under the sun is not all. It is not the end. God's eternal books show that we have great value. The world will forget us. Though soon our memories will, will fade away. But God is not. He has set his love upon you, his children, from before the foundations of the world. As Christ hung upon the cross, he had your name upon his lips. He had your sins upon his mind. And he called out, Father, it is finished. He had paid the price because of the great value which he places on you, which he gives to you. Now, if we live solely under the sun, then we must reckon with the truth that we must get over ourselves because our life is little to no lasting value. But if our value is found in our union with Christ, eternity with God, then our lives will be best used in in living, not for the vanities of this world, but 
for the steadfastness, the surety, the confidence, the glory of God of all eternity. Contrast of life under the sun and living life for the Lord. The second point, the natural world continues on. We see this for verse 4b through the rest, or through verse 8. The earth abides forever. And then he gives the, the, the examples from, from nature of the sun and of the, the rivers flowing through. The natural world continues on. As I said in the introduction, he's not talking theologically. He's not denying the second coming of Christ. But what we perceive here, we can take great pride in our farms, in our homes, in our states. And we can make plans to pass it on to our children. But really, in the big picture, how transitory is that? I'm not sure about the history of, of this community. I expect it's probably pretty similar to, to Minnow. In that 150 years ago, how many of you had family that was here? How many of your farms were established in your names? Probably, probably none. That same land that, that we look at now as being ours, it was someone else's before. It was... It, it was run by, by natives before, whatever. 150 years from now, it'll be some, in some other family, almost certainly. Our life is fleeting, but, but the stuff of this world just continues on. We're not that important in the big scheme of things here on, under the sun. The life, the world continues on. The cycles of this world are beyond our control. We can't control the sun. This morning, the sun came up. Looks like the sun has gone down. Tomorrow morning, it'll do the same thing. Tomorrow night, it'll do the same thing. And one of these days, our life will come to an end. And guess what? The sun's going to come up the next morning. It doesn't need us. It keeps going. The Missouri River is flowing down to the ocean. It never runs out. And the ocean never overflows. That's what someone's saying. The world continues on. God set Adam as a steward in the garden, and yet Adam is long gone. But the land remains. It's changed with floods and with deserts and times, but it's still there. Our senses are never filled up. We have all the labors of this life and, and we can't even express it. We, we can look at the world and, and we can never see it all. We can hear the sounds of this world and we can never hear it all. Our senses are never filled. God's creation is incomprehensible to us. We have scientists that think they've got it all figured out and they change their mind every other day. We cannot get a grasp on the things of this world. The universe was far before us and almost certainly will far outlast us. But again, what seems to be under the sun does not take into account our eternal standing. There was a beginning. In six days, God created the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that in them is. 
There was a beginning, and it was not founded by man. It was founded by God. There will be an end of this sin-cursed world because Christ will come again upon the clouds and the things of this world will be consumed and there will be a new heavens and a new earth, one wherein we will enjoy God forever. So on this horizontal plane of which Solomon is speaking, yes, the world continues on. But we praise God that we don't live ultimately on the horizontal We belong to a God who speaks with his voice all things into existence and who has sent his son to redeem a people and has told us that he has gone to prepare a place for us, a new place. That brings us into our third point. Is there anything new? That which has been is what will be, and that which is done is what will be done, and there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which it may be see, said, see, this is new. It has already been in ancient times before us. There's no res- remembrance of former things. See, I finally found something that's new. We always want that next new thing. And ultimately we find that it, it fails. It, it, it fails the expectations. New inventions. We put a man on the moon. That was 54 years ago. And we haven't done it since. We created new vaccines. Yeah, but with mixed results. The point is, the laws of creation are the same, and we can't produce new ones. We are subject to the same laws of physics, the same laws that God has given us. We might employ them slightly differently from time to time, but never significantly. Or maybe we just learn to think better. Maybe that's it. New philosophies, new ideas new insights. But as we distill the new philosophies, they always seem to come back down to the same old. The question of the one and the many. We still recognize that there's no new truth. All truth is God's truth. How about medical advances? Surely there's been huge advances there. But the days of our life are still limited to 70 or 80. We have a couple folks in our church that are about to turn 100. Will they have a terminus also? We haven't made huge advances. Maybe a new world order. We have peace in the world now, finally. Well, then we have rockets going off in Israel. We have war in Russia. What did we learn from the Holocaust? We learned how to murder babies more efficiently. There's nothing new under the sun, it seems. Or is there anything new? There is one I would propose to you. There is one new thing under the sun. That is when God himself brought himself under the sun. When he sent his son Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the God who 
created all things, who, who created the sun to run on its circuit, who governs the waters to flow out into the ocean, to number the days of each of us, sent him to be born under the sun. Sent him to fulfill that law that we have destroyed with our rebellion. Sent his son to intrude into our life here under the sun to suffer the torments of hell that we brought upon ourselves and to so redeem us, to give us that eternity of which we spoke early, earlier with the new heavens and the new earth, where there's no more sorrow, no more tears, the former things have passed away. Yes, there is one new thing under the sun. That is when God intruded in to redeem us, to give us life, to give us hope so that, that our whole identity would no longer be caught up in vanity of vanities of the ephemeral, but we have now the eternity. And that is sure and that is certain. Our identity and our value is not ultimately found in the things of this created world but is found in our union with God in Christ. This is new. This is eternal. This is the profit that man has, that we are found, body and soul, in union with our Lord. And therein, we do have value. And our Lord has not forgotten us. Like this world will forget us, our Lord has not. And we can look forward with confidence to life eternal. With those saints who have gone before. But with our Lord who has redeemed us. Amen. Let's pray.